Welcome everyone to CityMind Real on Pride. Today I'm joined by three panelists, all with different stories and perspectives to have a really open and honest conversation about Canada's role in navigating 2S LGBTQ plus refugees to safety. So this is a CityMind Real wake up call that is not to be missed. I'm gonna introduce my panelists. So I'll start with uh, Professor Sean Rehag, Director of the Center for Refugee Studies. Welcome. We have Justin Ling with us, journalist and author. Welcome. We have Biko Buta, human rights advocate and UNHCR Canada Glambassador. Welcome. So today it's about pride and persecution. We're, we're going to ask, you know, how safe really is Canada for members of the LGBTQ plus communities? So Sean, can you speak about the history of Canada's refugee and immigration law when it comes to claiming status based on sexuality, as well as what's happening right now, its current state? Uh, Well, uh, Canada was one of the first uh, countries in the world to recognize that people who face persecution on account of their um, sexual orientation could obtain uh, a refugee protection. So that happened in about the uh, mid-1990s in Canada, uh, and then a number of other countries followed suit. Uh, Since that time, um, around 10 to 15 percent of uh, people who make refugee claims in Canada are doing so on the basis of sexual orientation, and uh, thousands Thousands of people uh, have obtained uh, refugee protection uh, on that basis. So Canada is a a real uh, leader uh, in this area. Okay, Biko, you've actually, uh, you've been through the process firsthand. So you've experienced this. Can you tell us what you went through to get to Canada? So even though Canada has come a long way in advancing the rights of LGBT folks, I myself am a beneficiary of these uh, rights in the sense that I became a refugee and Uh, because it was illegal to be who I am in Kenya, moved to Canada to seek asylum, and I was granted asylum and protections here in Canada. But despite all these advances we've experienced, it's still really difficult for trans folks, especially trans folks of color, to advance themselves, to be able to thrive. Being trans is still a danger to your health, even though Canada is a country with equal rights, even the U.S., Malcolm X says that the Black woman is the most marginalized woman in America. However, the fact is, based on the deaths that happen, trans women of color are the most marginalized. And I'd like to say that when we talk about Black Lives Matter, let's not forget that Black transgender women are also Black. So advocate for us as well. Always. Can you tell Mm -hmm. us, Biko, a little bit about your experience coming into Canada? What was it like as an asylum seeker? Well, for the first thing, my welcoming committee was Immigration Canada. So forget what people say about Canada. It's nice and all those things. I don't think the people at immigration got this memo. Either they didn't get the memo or they're a different kind of Canadian. My first 36 hours was spent at detention which was horrible in itself. And my first six months in Canada was spent at a refugee shelter. And I only stayed there for six months because it's very difficult to get a landlord to rent an apartment for you to leave the shelter when they know you're a refugee. It's hard enough for anyone to get an apartment in Toronto. Imagine how hard it is when the only ID you have is a large piece of paper that they stamped at the airport, refugee, 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 with a picture that they took when you weren't your best you know, it's, it's a huge challenge. 
And which is why I appreciate organizations like the 519 Community Center and UNHCR Canada for doing the work when it comes to advancing the rights of refugees. Thank you for that. I'm going to go to Sean now because you say one of the biggest challenges that claimants face is credibility. Can you explain that a bit further? Yeah, well, when people come to Canada and they make a, a refugee claim, they need to show that they meet the refugee definition in order to obtain protection here. And uh, one of the challenges that uh, sexual minority refugee claimants face uh, is uh, showing that they're credible uh, with regard to their, uh, their story, uh, essentially that their story is true. And there are um, a variety of, of uh, places in the hearing process, the refugee hearing process, where sexual minority refugee claimants can run into trouble with that. The main one is uh, in terms of establishing that they are who they say that they are, that is, uh, that they are in fact gay, lesbian, bi, trans. And so uh, that can be a real challenge. Another real challenge is um, that uh, claimants need to show uh, that the uh, harms that they fear back home are sufficiently serious so as to amount to uh, persecution. So it's not enough to show that you face discrimination um, uh, back home, that you couldn't get work, for example. You need to show that you face really serious risks. And so uh, that uh, can be a challenge. And then another challenge uh, is that you need to show that the state doesn't protect you from um, your persecution from the mistreatment that you uh, that you fear um, and that is is can also be uh, a real challenge especially in contexts where there's uh, really serious mistreatment of sexual minorities and where human rights organizations uh, aren't able to do work uh, on the ground to document uh, all of the forms of persecution and the lack of protection from the state there are, uh, are all of these challenges in terms of proving uh, your case. Uh, all refugee claimants face those challenges, but they play out in, in specific ways, I think, for sexual minority refugee claimants. So it's not and, enough to say yeah. that you are you hail from one of the 71 jurisdictions around the world that criminalize private, consensual, same-sex sexual activity. You have to prove what you are, prove uh, that you are in harm's way before you can get into the, uh, the Canadian border. So I imagine that when you talk about credibility, like I imagine that would be a bit of a humiliating process. Having to prove your identity. Biko, did you feel that when you were stuck in immigration? Yes, I did feel that. And that, to be honest, is the most, I can't even put it to words because, for instance, uh, let's take a refugee claimant coming from, let's say, Jamaica, which is, for most people, would argue it's a really horrible place for you to be gay. Now, if you come to Canada to seek asylum, Canada is usually the first place where you've ever had to vocalize and come out that you're gay. And when someone is telling you to go prove that you're gay, they're asking you questions like, have you ever had a boyfriend? Do you ever go to gay clubs? And the people are like, you know, this is why I was escaping my country because it was not safe enough for me to have a boyfriend. I've never had a boyfriend or a girlfriend. I know there was one case in the UK where a refugee claimant, they were lesbians, and they sent a porn video to court, then this was how they were able to prove that they were a same-sex couple. And when it comes to a point, reaches a point where you have to send porn to court, it's going way too far. Actually, if I, if I can really briefly, years ago, I, I, I got a hold of a woman who uh, hailed from Uganda. She had filed a refugee claim here in Canada. 
um, basically with a really well-founded fear that she was um, at risk, both based on the laws of, of, of Uganda and also based on a number of local officials who basically had it out for her. She's a lesbian and she came to Canada with her two kids. When she went before the Immigration and Refugee uh, Review Board, the judge started demanding to know how it was possible she was lesbian and had two kids and actually denied her claim on the basis of the fact that she had children as, as though you know, having kids disqualifies you from being lesbian or bisexual. Uh, the number of cases like this I've seen over the years is absolutely eye-watering. And Justin, that's happening now in 2021. Like there are these old sort of preconceived notions of what it means to be a part of the two SLGBTQ plus communities. And they're using these as the litmus test to get into the country. This was, this is maybe six years ago, but I think, and Sean, I'm sure could speak to this. You know, I think those preconceived notions have just come up in a different way, right? It's not hard to imagine that uh, refugee claimants who are seeking protection based on their gender identity or gender expression are going through the same sort of dehumanizing and and needlessly interrogatory sort of questioning from from immigration judges or officials, right? They tend to operate on the basis that you need hard evidence, you need documentation, you need consistent simple, clear proof of your identity when the reality is sexuality and gender is rarely as simple and cut and dry and sort of documented and stamped and, and you know, notarized as, as these judges seem to want. Absolutely. Sean, what I am going to ask you to speak on is just the fact that refugee claimants uh, also have this sort of luck of the draw situation that they have to deal with. Can you speak to that? Yeah, well, the kind of challenges that uh, that Biko and, and Justin just raised there uh, are challenges that uh, some refugee claimants uh, confront because they were unlucky in uh, terms of who their decision maker was. Uh, there are lots of people at the Immigration and Refugee Board uh, who know a lot about LGBTQ uh, uh, issues. Uh, there are members uh, of the community uh, that are serving uh, on that board and that are very sensitive to these uh, questions. But Unfortunately, uh, the experience of refugee claimants, whether they're sexual minority refugee claimants or or otherwise, is quite uh, uneven. I've done um, quite a bit of research uh, looking at all uh, outcomes in Canadian refugee uh, claims. And uh, one of the things that I've uh, seen in that research uh, is that some uh, decision makers uh, will grant refugee protection in virtually every case that they hear, whereas others will deny every single claim uh, that uh, they hear. And I think if you break it down further and you look at how do particular decision makers approach particular types of cases, you would see a similar disparity. So there's there's a, a problematic um, a lack of the draw in, uh, in this area. Um, and it's a real problem because if we get these decisions wrong, if someone meets the refugee definition and they're not recognized as such, they can be sent back to a country where they're going to be uh, persecuted, uh, tortured, uh, or even killed. So this is a really high stake legal decision-making process. It's important that we get it right. And in my view, there's too much subjectivity uh, in the process uh, at the moment. Okay. I'm going to shift gears and take this local. So this one's for Justin. In your opinion, how does this translate to like more specifically Toronto uh, and Canada being a safe haven for 2S LGBTQ plus members? Yeah, I mean, I don't think you have to go back. I know you don't have to go back very far to actually underscore the way in which Toronto was fundamentally unsafe for refugee claimants. 
between 2010 and 2017, eight men disappeared from Toronto's gay village, ultimately the victims of a serial killer. Fully, uh, six of those eight men were refugee claimants, right? You know, they came to Canada, you know, escaping civil war, um, escaping uh, political persecution, escaping persecution based on their sexuality. They came here. Uh, supposedly, you know, seeking Toronto or recognizing Toronto as a safe haven, and when they disappeared, uh, you know, when they were reported missing, just woefully inadequate steps were taken to actually find them. And what you saw, and this is very well documented, this comes out of conversations I've had with police officers. This comes out of the investigative record. This comes out of an external review. What you saw was these officers who actually used their refugee status and their immigration status as sort of an excuse not to look for them. You actually heard officers say things like, well, maybe they went back home. You know, you have one openly gay man from Afghanistan, openly gay man from Sri Lanka, um, you know, a number of queer individuals from, uh, from Turkey, from, from Iran, from elsewhere. And the, the starting point was, well, maybe they just packed up and went back home, as though home was an option for these men. That was an assumption that is fundamentally, you know, quite, actually quite racist. It was an assumption that hobbled the investigation from the get-go. And it's not hard to believe that this is the sort of default assumption that you see cops use in many cases involving uh, violence, uh, homicide, assault, what, so on and so forth, targeting refugees and, 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 those, and immigrants to this country. In one case, you even saw a refugee claimant have his case denied and have to go into hiding in Toronto from where he disappeared. So you actually saw a case where this really subjective and arbitrary immigration process actually forced him to go underground to live in secret in the shadows. And ultimately that put him at an enormous risk. So, you know, there are ways in which our society deals with refugees in a way that actually makes them unsafe, even in the place where they're supposed to be, you know, sheltered and protected. Biko, I want to know from you, has your perspective about Canada changed since you've started living here? Before I get to that, I just want to add one more thing that has always bothered me about the whole refugee process. Mm -hmm. We've talked about how hard it is for refugees and refugee claimants, but I think it's how hard it is for brown and black refugees. Because if you remember, when LGBT people were being persecuted in Chechnya, when there were white gay men, being a refugee has never been so easy. Radio stations were buying you plane tickets to come to Canada. And when you landed in Canada, you were automatically landed without any problems. I've never seen this being applied to refugees who are black or brown. But has Canada changed? I would say I knew Canada was the place I wanted to be when I left the airport after detention for 36 hours and I was in this shuttle bus and I hadn't eaten or slept and I was starving. And there was this older couple that come from vacation. I won't forget, it was Cuba. This older couple had come from Cuba and they saw me looking all like decrepit probably. And they had a muffin for each one of them to eat after their journey. And they shared one and gave me one to eat for myself. Canada has always been good. It's just immigration. That's not, that's weird. But Canada has always been, you know, based on what, our indigenous brothers and sisters and two-spirit people are constantly telling us it's a place where everyone is welcome if you're going to abide by the laws of nature, the people, and the culture. This is what Canada is all about. That's fair. Justin, let's, you mentioned a little bit about 
Toronto Police. Uh, and so I'd like to delve a little bit more into what folks in the 2S LGBTQ communities might have to deal with and face when it comes to Toronto Police. Yeah, I mean, listen, it, it's a difficult topic. I mean, I don't think police anywhere have done right by you know marginalized communities, whether that's racialized, uh, queer folks, Indigenous people. Um, and I think you know those sort of shortcomings and those failures kind of manifest in a very particular way when it comes to the queer community, right? You know, for for far, far, far too long, Toronto Police Service as well as police services all across North America, you know, actually targeted the queer community, you know, and criminalized them in such a way that looking back now feels absolutely ludicrous. I mean, they looked at the queer community as a bastion for crime, as a bastion for immorality. And, and basically saw them as a community that needed cleaning up, right? I mean, this was the actual language that was being used. It is very rich and, and difficult to, to swallow now to hear the Toronto police and other police services talk about how they want to work with the queer community, how they want to cooperate with the queer community. It really rings hollow so often, given that that long history of overcriminalization is often just swept under the rug, given that there are still so many cases of violence against queer people, particularly trans women, particularly trans women of color, that have gone unsolved and, frankly, woefully and criminally underinvestigated. And it's hard to stomach all of this when you know the, some factors of criminalization are still around. You still see sex workers and trans people face undue persecution from police services everywhere. And a lot of the time, you see this sort of interweaving of a whole bunch of these problems, right? refugee status, economic precarity, homelessness, drug use, so on and so forth, all of which are things that can get criminalized. You mix in uh, sexuality or gender identity, you mix in sex work, and you have this reality where a lot of the people who get the short end of the societal bargain are also the ones most likely to get arrested, most likely to get ticketed, most likely to get arbitrarily stopped and questioned. And amidst all of that, you hear the police say things like, we want to work with you, we want to cooperate with you, we want to we want a friendship with you. It's really hard to put those two things together and make them work. So fundamentally, you know, it's, it's nice to hear the Toronto Police Service and other police services talk a good game and want to come to the Pride Parade and, you know, put the, you know, the Pride lapel on their, on their uniform. But in terms of, of real action and, and, you know, day-to-day interactions and relationships, it just is still so fundamentally broken. Let's talk uh, about a case that you are very familiar with, Justin. Bruce MacArthur murders uh, that took place, as you mentioned, from 2010 to 2017. So can you just compare the reaction of the community versus the reaction of police? And do you believe that MacArthur actually could have been stopped earlier and why? I mean, it's not even the question of believing. I know he could have been stopped earlier. I mean, we have established a whole bunch of points along the timeline where he could have been stopped earlier where perhaps if the Toronto Police Service were not so insistent on assuming that refugees pick up and go back home, even after going through all of these processes, you know, if they had not gone down that rabbit hole of believing that, if they had listened to more people who were coming forward with information about Bruce MacArthur, if they had more thoroughly questioned him or investigated him when they pulled him in for an interview in 2013, if they had done a better job of linking missing persons cases that happened uh, between 2015 and 20, 2017, if they had done a better job of, of you know sharing files, if they had done a better job. I can literally sit here for 15 or 20 minutes and list all of the things that if only done slightly different, 
And with a little bit more care and compassion and understanding, things that could have fundamentally altered the case, the course of this investigation and saved lives. There's so many of them. And I think a lot of it does go back to listening to the community. You've heard the community after you know, so many of these disappearances come out and say, we believe we're being targeted. We believe there's something wrong here and we don't feel like you're listening to us. And oftentimes the response of the police was dismissive. And I think fundamentally, if you have that, you know, that's a disconnect I'm talking about. If you have a community raising the alarm and the police saying, you're wrong, well, then something's really, really broken there. And, you know, again, it's nice to hear the Toronto Police Service try and accept some responsibility for these failures. But we still have the case of a trans woman who died around the same time that is still unresolved. And there are massive, massive red flags in terms of the investigation that went into her death. Alora Wells has been dead for three years, and we still have no answers about what happened to her. We still have too few answers in terms of why the police were reticent to actually tell the community that they had found the body of a trans woman that they had not identified. We still don't know why her uh, partner has not been interviewed to this point. You know, there are so many problems with this, and actually, it bugs me that the community, the, the city writ large, has largely forgotten about Alora. She deserves answers just like those eight men deserved answers. And it's really tough to hear the Toronto Police Service, again, demand sort of cooperation and forgiveness when they still haven't delivered answers for what happened to Alora. Speaking from a Black woman, it looks to me like a value judgment. It's a value. You know, some lives are considered valuable. Some lives are not considered valuable. That seems to be what it comes down to when it comes to action. And Justin, I just I got a question for you. Just what action have you seen, if any, taken by the Toronto police towards doing better? And, you know, not performative action, but actual substantive action to do better. Have you seen any evidence of that? I've seen good indications around how they deal with missing persons cases. You know, that's the whole sort of separate issue that is related and very important. And I think that's really encouraging. In terms of, of the community itself, I, I'm frankly not, I'm not impressed. Um, you know, I, I would, would be impressed by a recognition that the Toronto Police are going to stop demanding to march in pride parade, the Pride Parade until they actually have sort of acceptance, um, you know, from the community. I would be impressed by a recognition that um, all of these unsolved cases targeting queer people deserve extra attention. We haven't seen that. I would be encouraged uh, hearing the police say going forward they would stop as a per, on a permanent basis, undercover operations uh, on, on morality raids. We still see those continuing up until the last few years, arresting men for cruising in parks. I would be encouraged uh, to hear them talk about uh, ending prosecutions and arrests for sex work. We haven't seen that. So frankly, in terms of actual sort of tangible actions the Toronto Police Service has taken, I, I'm frankly not impressed, no. Biko, I want to ask you this. What challenges have you faced living in Toronto? I would say, first of all, as a trans woman who lives in Toronto, it's one of the most progressive and better cities of the world to be a trans person. Now, with that said, I don't know what it is, but I think we all touched on it. Maya Angelou puts it best when she says, she calls it the soft bigotry of low expectation in the sense that this is why we're not taken seriously. A huge place that I find that it's really hard to exist as a trans woman is in the healthcare system where I know trans folks who refuse to go to the emergency room 
And these people are suffering the most horrific medical emergencies. And the reason they refuse to go to the emergency room is because it's just a very stressful event to go through the medical system. And they're resorting to self-medicating. In fact, if I may use myself as an example, you wouldn't be able to tell, or maybe you can, my jaw is dislocated right now. And I know there was one time where I was in so much pain to where I was suicidal because I wanted the pain to stop. I went to one of the hospitals with the University Health Network and I was discharged in an hour without receiving any kind of medical treatment. And I had to call my friends from the hospital to come and counsel and give me therapy. And I was at a hospital. And I even today I heard of a case of a trans woman who was literally using safety pins to pick at the cavities in her mouth because no one is giving her medical attention. And when she goes to the ER, the first thing the doctors assume is she's there because she's addicted to opioids and she wants to use it as a ruse to get painkillers. And they never ask the same type of, put these hurdles on everybody else. It just feels like Again, it's a soft bigotry of low expectations where we have health care for some people and for others, it's health don't care. And quite frankly, I think uh, the Minister of Health and the mayor should be ashamed of all the suffering that trans women of color go through in their city and jurisdictions. I've heard it said before that cops are to black men what the healthcare system is to black women and particularly trans women of color. So it is an unfortunate and disgusting state. Absolutely. We should all have access to this care. Sean, I got a question in from a viewer now. This one is for you. Do you see the legal process for refugee claims based on gender or sexual identity improving? Are steps being taken to make it less invasive and more fair? Yeah, I, I, I do think that there has been uh, some improvement. When I think back to some of the old uh, sexual minority refugee law cases uh, that I've uh, read, just on their face, uh, they're deeply problematic. So I remember one case I always think about. It was a case involving a, a Colombian woman and the uh, decision maker um, uh, included in the decision uh, a passage saying something like, uh, well, the claimant presents as uh, articulate, uh, well-educated, attractive. Uh, I don't believe that uh, she's a lesbian. And you're like, well, what exactly is it that you've got in mind? What, what image are, are, are you working with uh, that you're comparing this claimant to? Or I think about a, a case from uh, Mexico uh, where the claimant said, uh, the decision maker said, the claimant is, uh, he's a big guy, he's built, he's got big hands. I don't believe that he'd be perceived as gay uh, in uh, Mexico. Again, you know, why anyone would think that it's appropriate to write that kind of thing in a, a refugee decision is beyond me. So you used to see that kind of thing uh, all the time. Justin mentioned a case that had similarly problematic language. I think it's less common um, to see that language now. The Immigration Refugee Board, um, the, their decision makers do go through uh, training on these questions. There's a guideline that's meant to help them uh, make decisions. The federal court has repeatedly said, don't rely on stereotypes in making your decisions. So I think, I think things have improved. I really worry, though, that some of the stereotypes have just moved underground. That is, the decision makers have learned that they're not supposed to explicitly rely on the stereotypes. 
But if you talk to refugee lawyers, they'll say when people don't meet those stereotypes, when when a person's presentation doesn't track onto stereotypes about what sexual minority lives and bodies look like, uh, lawyers are worried for their uh, their clients, and they're not worried that the decision maker is going to say you don't meet this stereotype, so I don't believe you. They're worried that they're going to point to some other issue, some contradictions in the evidence or vague testimony or whatever. But really what's driving the decision is the uh, stereotypes. So uh, I think things have uh, improved a bit, but there's uh, still a long way to go. I want to ask all of you the same question because it's interesting. We hear Canada is a safe haven and then Canada isn't safe. So the, the question is, what are your feelings on Canada as a safe haven? And I'm going to let Justin start. Well, listen, obviously, I'm, yeah, I'm a white man. You know, my, my you know, analysis of this is, is entirely through talking to um, you know, other folks who you know, do face the daily realities of being over-policed and under-protected in this city. You know, I don't think, for many people, Canada is as safe as it could be. Is it safer than elsewhere? Yes. Is it safer than many other countries? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, being somewhat safe isn't good enough, right? We need to strive to have, you know, real, actual protections for people. We need to strive to have a police service that actually reflects the communities that they're supposed to be protecting. Um, A a police service that is not about policing communities as much as it is about making sure they're safe. It means having a police service where people feel comfortable coming forward with complaints or with information in hopes of keeping each other safe. You know, just in the last several days, we've seen an instance of an alleged uh, hate crime take place on the Toronto Island. And there, you know, there is some suggestion that the police may not have uh, responded quick enough or, or, or adequately. We're only just now seeing a statement by police about uh, some of the incidents that, 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 that occurred on Saturday evening. So I think you know, it's kind of on us to keep demanding better, right? It's on us to keep pointing out where people are not safe, do not feel safe, and where the, the police service is, is just really not doing enough to create an environment where they can be safe. And there's lots of very practical ways to do that. It's not as though this is an intractable problem, right? You know, it really does come down to making sure those communities don't feel, um, you know, under a watchful eye of the state. It comes down to making sure that they're not being you know, arrested or stopped more often than you know, straight, cisgender, white folks. It's about making sure they feel like they're a part of the community, a part of the system, um, as opposed to making them feel outside of it. And then fundamentally, it's about taking seriously the complaints that those communities uh, lay and, and, the, and the issues they raise. You know, when a community starts saying people are disappearing from the village and we want your help to find them, that needs to be taken with incredible seriousness. And we've seen in a very in our very recent history, it wasn't. You need to be able to hear trans women when they come forward and say, people are being abused, people are being assaulted, people are being killed, and we need your help to solve those cases, to bring justice for those women. And again, all too often, it's not happening. So until you can see some of those things start to change, I think you know, it is fair to say Canada is not safe for many people. And it's time that it, that it becomes so. Thank you for that, Justin. Biko, is Canada a safe haven? It's complicated in the sense that Canada is one of the best places in the world to exist as an LGBTQ2S person. However, in that same regard, we've seen that if you are a trans woman of color or BIPOC or 
even worse, one of our indigenous brothers and sisters and two-spirit folks, they have a completely different experience. And as much as I like to advocate and speak up about the atrocities that trans women of color face, I honestly cannot imagine what it would be like to be one of our indigenous two-spirited folks. I can't imagine. So in that regard, Canada is safe. However, if we're going to talk about diversity and inclusion, we're seeing this diversity being relegated at the bottom. What we need to see is an advancement of this diversity. So for example, it's not enough to hire trans women of color at entry-level positions. You also have to promote them so that they can go on to advance themselves and thrive. And when we get to that point, that's when Canada will be a utopia leading the world in these changes. But we have a long way to go. And if I may just finalize on the Toronto police, I'm not speaking for them in any way, but I'm part of a task force with the Toronto police for trans women that's been established in Toronto. They understand, seem to understand that there's, they've missed a lot of steps. And I feel like even though they're not moving as fast as any of us would like to, it looks to me that they're trying to make steps in the right direction. Thank you, Biko. Mm-hmm. Sean, is Canada a safe haven? Well, I, th- I think that's a great question to ask during the time of, of Pride. So uh, for me, uh, Pride is a time of, of celebration. Uh, and I think we should celebrate that uh, thousands of people have obtained refugee uh, protection on the basis of their sexual orientation in Canada. And that, that's something that I think we should celebrate. At the same time, for me, Pride is also a time where we uh, reflect on uh, what more needs to be done, um, and we work with our uh, allies to try to to make advances. And so when it comes to uh, advances, I think what we've heard through the conversation today is a need to to think more seriously about the experiences that people have here uh, in Canada, especially the experiences of people who are facing intersectional pressures and, and challenges due to, to, to race, to gender identity uh, or expression, socioeconomic status, language, mental health, uh, all of those factors, I think, influence how people experience Canada as safe or not. And we need to do more to help people who are not experiencing Canada as safe. We also really need to work to continue to improve decision-making in this area. We need to continue to fight against the really problematic stereotypes in this area. We need to continue to insist that invasive forms of of questioning in refugee hearings are inappropriate. We need to continue to fight against immigration detention, uh, for example. So there's uh, places that we need to, to work on in terms of the experience that people have engaging with immigration here. And then finally, I think if we're thinking about Canada as a safe haven for sexual minorities facing persecution abroad, I think we really need to to think about what Canada does to prevent people from getting here uh, to begin with. Canada is very aggressive. We're actually a world leader in preventing refugee claimants from getting to the country. We use visa policies. We use uh, criminalization of uh, people who provide transit uh, to refugees. We literally fine airlines for every refugee that they bring to the country. So we need to ask ourselves, if Canada wants to be a safe haven for uh, people facing persecution on account of their sexual orientation abroad, if we do, and I think we do, we need to rethink uh, some of these practices because you can't be putting up barriers, preventing people from getting here and then saying, look at us, aren't we progressive? So I think we need to live up to our uh, aspirations. 
Well, that's what the whole conversation was about. Do we live up to the hype? And I can't think of three better panelists to speak with. Thank you so much for participating. Happy Pride. Happy Pride. Happy Pride. Happy Pride.